Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Kuntavi, a research analyst at the Institute. India and Japan share a rich bilateral relationship. However, this hasn't always been the case. To further analyze the trajectory of this bilateral relationship alongside historical approaches, I'm delighted to be joined by Emeritus Professor Purindra Jain, School of Social Sciences, the University of Adelaide. Welcome to South Asia Chat, Prof Jain. Thank you. So as established before, India and Japan share a rich bilateral relationship. In the evolving context of China, Quad and South Asia, it will be crucial to revisit this relationship and discuss the moving components of these growing ties. So to start off, both countries as they share a very strong bilateral relationship today. And it's a common perception that what brought Tokyo and New Delhi together mainly was the rise of China and changing dynamics prevailing within Asia. What is your view on this stance? Do you think this is a rather reductive portrayal of their bilateral relationship? Or has it advanced beyond this main contributing factor? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Uh, before I delve into the China question, I just thought it might be um, you know, important for the listener to have some background. Um, so in the, in the broader Asian context, uh, South Asia, generally speaking, and India um, particularly, uh, remained on the periphery of Japan's Asia vision for most of the post-war period, especially when we compare Japan's far deeper engagement with East and Southeast Asia. So in this period, that is the post-war period, South Asia was the other Asia or, uh, for Japan, and it can be safely said that Japan's presence in South Asia uh, be it economic, political, or strategic, uh, came nowhere close to the connections Japan established in the other Asian sub-region. Um, so only in the very early post-war period, say up to the late 1950s, uh, we see some engagement with India becoming a recipient of Japan's first yen loans for developmental purposes and mutual visits of Prime Ministers, Prime Ministers of the two countries, Mr. Kishi uh, to India and Prime Minister Nehru to Japan. We can fast forward that and on the China question as you have asked, uh, the positive story of India-Japan bilateral cooperation in the 21st century started a little before China began to loom as a factor over Japan's strategic horizon. So when Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori from Japan visited India in 2000 after the lowest point in the relationship uh, following India's nuclear testing in, in 1998, uh, this was a kind of bridge building exercise. Uh, American President Bill Clinton had visited India only a few months previously, um, seeing U.S.-India relations on a mending path. Uh, Tokyo also seized the moment and began to seek partnership with India. 
So the process of recovery from the fallout of 1998 was slow, but nevertheless on a path of rediscovering of the relationship. Uh, so Prime Minister Modi's visit was followed by Prime Minister, Indian Prime Minister Bajpayee's visit to Japan, to Japan in 2001 and then in 2005 the Japanese Prime Minister Mr. Koizumi came to India. But the real story starts with Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister of Japan and Manmohan Singh, then Prime Minister of, of India, meeting in Tokyo in 2006. The stage was set for a new era in the Japan-India relationship with the meeting of these two Prime Ministers in 2006 when they announced an India-Japan strategic and global partnership, a narrative that has remained at the mainstay of the bilateral relationship. Um, then you know, um, Abe's first term as Prime Minister and his speech in the Indian Parliament had opened a brand new chapter in the relationship. So both under Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party and opposition in power after Abe had stepped down in 2007 until 2012, the Japan-India relationship remained on an upward trajectory but a real push came when Abe returned to power in 2012. In December 2015, Prime Minister Abe paid an official visit to India and the two Prime Ministers, at that time of course the new Prime Minister Mr. Modi, they resolved to transform the India or Japan-India special strategic and global partnership into a deep broad-based and action-oriented partnership and this um, adjective special was added in September 2014 at the time of Mr. Modi's visit to Japan and at their 2015 meeting they announced Japan and India vision 2025 a special strategic and global partnership working together for peace and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific region and the world. So now coming to China very quickly, uh, China is a factor, absolutely no denying, in both the bilateral relationship and many mini-lateral uh, frameworks which have been formed. Having said that, uh, I would also like to mention that there are other attractions too. Uh, for example, from Japan's perspective, India's potential in the economic field is a big um, attraction and India's strategic value overall, not just in relation to China, is also important in my view. For example, India is a, a significant power in the Indian Ocean region, which is very attractive to Japan. Uh, both Japan and India, they want to um, reform the United Nations and expand the membership of the Security Council and of course Japan would like to keep India closed despite New Delhi's orientation towards Russia and its minilaterals involving Russia and China 
namely the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and BRICS, for example. But to answer your question in short, yes, China is a huge factor, but that is not the factor. Thank you so much for sharing your views about uh, what contributed to the strong bilateral ties and also some historical developments and uh, context to their relationship. And um, now, touching upon what you've already shared about their more recent initiatives, uh, if you look towards more recent projects within the bilateral relationship, uh, Japan has said to expand energy transition support to India, driving the transition to clear energy. And this is one of the more current examples of the enhanced bilateral ties and also taking note of the both states' participation in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, also known as IPEF. Uh, what other areas of cooperation can you see both states looking at to further optimize their bilateral ties or maximize uh, each other's strengths? Okay, I think uh, there are three parts to this question. One is the transition to clean energy. Uh, the other is what other areas of cooperation can both states look at. And the third one is the IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Co Framework. I will answer, try and answer those questions uh, in that, uh, um, you know, in that context. So the first is about the clean energy. Uh, and India-Japan Clean Energy Partnership Statement, I think it was announced very recently uh, in March 2022 when Japanese Prime Minister Kishida was, uh, he went to Delhi for a summit meeting with uh, the Indian Prime Minister. So they had announced um, uh, detailing areas of cooperation uh, in clean energy, in, in clean energy as clean energy partnership. And this was actually reiterated at the time of another summit on the sidelines of the court meeting in Tokyo in May uh, this year, that is 2022. Um, I think is Japanese industry minister uh, Koichi Hagiuda also recently stated Japan that Japan intends to encourage India uh, to accelerate the switch to clean energy by expanding a program uh, which Japan has already started with Southeast Asian countries last year. So I think the Japanese side is taking the example of his cooperation with ASEAN countries and how that experience can be then uh, used uh, to transit uh, India uh, to clean energy um, platforms, that is decarbonization. Um, it's a very new initiative and it's hard to know. Uh, what we know that Japan is committed to a net zero emission by 2050, whereas India is committed to a net zero emission 2070. So there is already 20 years lag between Japan and India's objective towards net zero. So that's why Japan can accelerate that process or at least trying to help India accelerate that process. However, I can see some roadblocks. Uh, it's not easy. 
um, because experiences which the Japanese companies are um, having in Southeast Asian nations, uh, it can lead to increased manufacturing costs. Uh, also, Japanese companies might face how to deal with suppliers and contractors and their decarbonization policy because that impinges on the uh, net zero emission as well. And of course, there is shortage of renewable energy, uh, which could be another impediment to accelerate this process. But nevertheless, this is a very good initiative, as we know that uh, you know climate change has become a, a very good, a, a very important issue in global politics. Uh, there are some other joint Indo-Japanese initiatives which are new. Uh, one of them is the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative. Uh, Japan is encouraging its companies to exit uh, China and relocate companies back to Japan or to other Asian countries, including India. So India is also a target country for this China exit uh, policy. Uh, but looking at some of the recent figures, I didn't see many Japanese companies opting to go to India, they are going in Southeast Asian countries, namely Thailand and Vietnam, but I haven't seen many going to India. So this process is also a, a, an important uh, initiative, but the process is quite slow. You know, Japan has established what they call Japanese industrial towns in India, in nine Indian states. But looking at the numbers of companies moving into those industrial towns, uh, they are um, you know, they are not significant uh, by any means. So the process is, uh, is quite slow. The initiatives are there, but the process of implementation is very slow. Uh, so similarly, we have India-Japan Digital Partnership and a Startup Hub because of Modi's initiative about digitalization of the Indian uh, economy. Uh, skill development is another. Uh, coming to the IPEF, IPEF is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, this is a regional scheme which goes to show that the United States is trying to regain credibility in the region after the Trump administration had withdrawn from the CPTPP or the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, I would like to uh, note here that IPEF is only a framework and not a trade deal. But for India, which withdrew at last minute from the RCE, RCEP, the IPEF provides India a good chance to participate in the framing of the ground rules for a fair trade or fairer trade regime for the region. And this has happened in Tokyo. This initiative was announced in Tokyo at the Quartz Summit shows Japan's, um, Japan as a key country behind this scheme. And certainly India has signed up as many other regional countries. So we need to wait and see what its outcomes uh, in the short and medium term. It's hard to say at this stage what will be its achievement.
again, very interesting what you've shared about the more recent projects and the sort of evolution and the future trajectory of their bilateral relationship. Like, um, the perception is that things will move quickly, but that might not be the case um, for a lot of things that they're involved in. And I guess another huge part of, or you could say a hallmark of India's Japan's relationship is their respective roles in the Quad. And earlier in May this year, the Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness, IPMDA, was announced to work with regional partners to respond to humanitarian and natural disasters, among others. The leaders also committed to deepening cooperation on infrastructure, stating that such investment is crucial to driving productivity and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region. With ambitious goals set, what is the future trajectory of Quad in South Asia? And how do you see the roles of Japan and India evolving within the dialogue? I also think you've covered a little bit about laying the um, how IPEF sort of lays the groundwork or the ground rules in the region. So I guess in that same context, um, where do we see Quad? I mean, first of all, look, you know, um, uh, one may argue, you talk about humanitarian and natural, humanitarian and natural disasters. Uh, one could argue that the Quad's orientation um, has shifted a little towards the its original aims when it was first formed in the wake of the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean. The four countries had then formed an informal uh, network and delivered humanitarian assistance in the wake of the disaster. Uh, but the core during its first iteration in the mid-2000s had um, vastly different geostrategic circumstances than when it was revived in 2017 and upgraded to the leaders level from official and ministerial level meetings. So now the goals are broadened and ambitious of course they are, but what can be effectively delivered is yet to be seen. I mean, we have heard about vaccine um, delivery, uh, but we don't know exactly how many and, you know, which country was involved in what way, but there has been some progress on vaccine diplomacy uh, through the Quad. Uh, you raised the point about the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness, uh, which was announced at the Quad's summit itself. And this is a scheme, I believe, um, to launch joint surveillance of the maritime space, uh, which will involve, in my view, navies of the four nations. So involving navies of the four nations uh, and uh, using them for surveillance, uh, the purpose, the purported aim is to check illegal fishing, but it really is a means, in my view, for the court to check China's activities, in particularly in the Indian Ocean uh, area. And some has already commented that uh, this can lead to further arms race and military tensions in the region. So how this IPMDA 
is going to go ahead and forward is something we need to sit and watch because this is not without problems. There are issues and uh, these countries have to be very careful how they move forward and whether that's going to solve problems or create more of them. Um, yeah, I mean, progress on bilateral and quadrilateral or other uh, minilateral um, frameworks, they take somewhat different course. Uh, bilaterally, for example, there are various frameworks of security and defense dialogue between Japan and India, including foreign and defense ministerial meeting. There is a two and two plus two meeting established recently involving the defense and foreign ministers of the two countries. And then they have Coast Guard to Coast Guard dialogue. Um, so there are lots of bilateral frameworks in military and defense uh, terms. But how these are going to help the trilateral and quadrilateral process, that is not clear to me. Uh, we can see that the coordinations are already involved in the Malabar exercise and other military exercises carried out bilaterally and trilaterally. So I believe one could argue that uh, India-Japan bilateral connections support trilateral and quadrilateral frameworks. But of course, I just said that they follow somewhat very different path. The nature of bilateralism is very different from the nature of, um, you know, minilateralism or pluri plurilateralism. Thank you again. So we've sort of now visited or reviewed um, India-Japan ties, uh, some of the hallmark projects, recent initiative, and uh, some of the historical context. And I guess moving on to one another important question today for Japan is um, much of the progress made in India-Japan relations in recent years from the Japanese side has been credited to former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. As you've recently written, Abe has left an enduring and lasting mark in developing a comprehensive partnership with India. Even after retiring from the Prime Ministership, he continued to bet for India. Can you perhaps share some of Ms. Abe's crucial contributions to the advancement of India-Japan's ties? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would like to mention that, you know, Abe, Mr. Abe was a diplomatic superman because, uh, you know, first of all, he managed or he had a very good relationship with India's Prime Minister, Mr. Manmohan Singh, uh, when Abe was in power first time in 2006-07 and also uh, between 2012 and 14. Uh, so Mr. Manmohan Singh was a very, from a very different political party. And then came Mr. Modi in 2014, and Abe befriended uh, both uh, Mr. Singh and Mr. Modi equally. Maybe his, his chemistry with Modi uh, was much stronger, but the point I want to make here that uh, Mr. Abe was very good at managing political leaders, global political leaders from different political parties, we also saw that in the case of the United States, 
because Mr. Abe was able to, you know, uh, very well uh, go with Mr. Obama and then a completely different, uh, from a completely different party and completely different personality, that is Mr. Trump. So Abe had that kind of diplomatic, uh, you know, a persona uh, behind him who could really, you know, befriend uh, leaders from different political parties. Um, now, Abe's signature a strategy or vision of the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, which has now been embraced around the world, was first laid out as a blueprint in Abe's speech to the Indian Parliament in 2007 during his first visit as Prime Minister. So Abe brought India on the global map through his creation and support for new networks of uh, collaborative frameworks bringing India into them. The Quad, we have already talked about the Quad uh, as an example. Uh, Abe was also uh, quite uh, uh, helpful in bringing India into different trilaterals uh, involving the US, Japan and the and India, as well as involving Japan, Australia, and India trilateral. Um, actually, it's quite interesting. I mean, Abe, were, Abe became the longest serving Prime Minister of Japan. Uh, he visited India four times uh, during his Prime Ministership, and he hosted Indian Prime Ministers five times. So we can see the intensity uh, of the India-Japan relationship through uh, during or through, during Mr. Abe's prime ministership, you know, no other prime minister of Japan or India had met each other uh, for uh, such a large number of times as did Mr. Abe. A month prior to his assassination, um, Abe took up the chairperson position of the Japan-India Association, which is a, a private non-government organization. And in my view, this could have been a vehicle for Abe to keep India close to Japan, even when he was out of office. I mean, the importance of Mr. Abe has been noted everywhere in the Indian press. But I just want to mention here uh, the tweets by uh, the Indian Prime Minister, uh, uh, Mr. Modi. Uh, he called Mr. Abe a dear friend. Uh, with whom he had a personal bond and he also called Mr. Abe a champion of India-Japan friendship. Uh, equally, you know, the former Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, also called Abe a good friend of mine. Uh, so we can see that, um, you know, the goodwill in India um, for Abe came from everywhere and all political parties of all colors and we can see this that the Indian government then awarded um, its second highest civilian award the Padma Vibhushan to Mr. Abe and this is a testament this is testament to Mr. Abe's uh, or India's respect and warmth uh, that Mr. Abe enjoyed in India. Uh, also, the Indian government announced a day of national mourning following his assassination to honor his contribution to India. 
So we can see that Abe was a phenomenal uh, uh, impact on India-Japan relations, uh, which uh, not only us who acknowledge this through our research and writings, but the Indian government, business, and everywhere from India, that has been the case. And um, to sort of follow up and kind of end the podcast, without a doubt, like you've mentioned, Abe was a pivotal driver in enhancing in Japan-India ties. He was also considered the chief architect for Quad. Uh, how do you see the bilateral relationship panning out under the current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida? Do you expect Japan to follow the Abe path or do you see any likely changes in Japan's foreign policy imperatives? My answer to these questions is broadly Japan will follow Abe's path. Uh, the current Prime Minister, Mr. Kishida, as a long-serving former foreign minister under Abe, knows India well and the value of India for Japan. So the bilateral relationship stands on solid institutional arrangements, uh, such as an annual summit between the prime ministers, the two plus two dialogue framework between the foreign and defense ministers. And in 2020, the two nations also signed what is called AXA, the Acquisition and Cross Servicing Agreement um, that allows access to each other's provision of supplies and services during the bilateral exercises and training. And uh, actually the Quad also undergirds India-Japan relations. So Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who took office late last year, 2021, seems to attach importance to India through his visit to India early in 2022 and his very warm reception of Prime Minister Modi during the May Quad uh, Summit in Tokyo. Although Kishida prefers to distinguish or any Prime Minister, new Prime Minister would like to do that, distinguish himself from his former boss and Prime Minister Abe, Kishida's broad foreign policy directions do not, in my analysis, diverge significantly from that of Abe. There are some subtle differences, but Kishida is attached to the Quad and regards India's role as crucial to sustain uh, his free and open Indo-Pacific concept. We can see, having said that, we can see some small cracks appearing, uh, such as that related to their different stance towards the Ukraine war. In particular, New Delhi's strategic and economic closeness to Russia. Uh, but these are unlikely to derail the process which has been set in motion, uh, built over the last two decades. Um, I remember one Japanese scholar describing the relationship as a close relationship with discrepancies. And I think these discrepancies are their different views towards Russia and India's uh, membership in SCO and, and India's membership in, uh, you know, BRICS. Um, but I think these are 
not going to, you know, disturb the relationship in a, in a big way uh, in any case. Um, I think um, during, before Mr. Kishida went to uh, India earlier this year, he wrote a, an op-ed, opinion piece, in India's uh, newspaper called Indian Express, and where he clearly mentioned about India's importance to Japan. And he raised, he said that, how can we build resilient supply chains and reinvigorate the economy uh, without India's cooperation? You know, uh, so, and international challenges, cybersecurity, climate change, so he said that both Japan and India are committed to taking bold measures to tackle those challenges. So he can see that how important India is. So finally, you know, my last uh, sentence or words uh, that while Kishida seems committed to India, absolutely no doubt about it, but the kind of leadership provided by Abe will be missed and it seems um, you know Abe is irreplaceable for now however the relationship as I have said today stands on solid footing thank you Prof Jane you were listening to South Asia chat in the first week of August ISIS will be holding its annual conference virtually you can get updates on our website, ises.nus.edu.sg, or from social media. We are on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you.